Let's pray together. God, thanks for um, your goodness to us and your grace. Thank you that you're present in this place. God, we know that you're present everywhere, but there is something unique when uh, the people of God, your children, come together and lift our voices to you. God, we can sense and feel that you are here in this room by your Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would speak as we've prepared our hearts in worshiping you through song, that you would um, permeate every aspect of our being through your word to us, the, the Bible. God, may yours be the only voice that's heard here today. In Christ's name, God's people together said, amen. I um, <clears throat> took some world religions classes in high school and in university, kind of comparative world religions courses. I don't know if any of you had to do the same thing. Did anybody have to take one of those comparative world religions classes in high school, university? Yeah. Yeah, interesting classes for a lot of reasons, but uh, for those of you who maybe come from a different educational background or a different country, what they do in the States and in Canada apparently is uh, they, they offer comparative world religions classes and they're, they're not just uh, elective, they're required courses that you have to take and, and, and it kind of introduces you to all different world religions. Uh, Judaism, Islam, uh, Christianity, Hindu, whatever, you know, whatever it is, introduced you to all the different world religions. And, and it was interesting to me because my instructors, both in high school and university, it seemed that their goal and, and even phrases and language that they repeated throughout the entire course was kind of like that all religions are pretty much the same. I don't know if you guys had the same experience as I did, but it was kind of like, look, all religions pretty much believe there's a God. All religions pretty much believe that God, you know, sent prophets and wants to interact with human beings. All religions pretty much believe in an afterlife and, you know, that you should be a good person and that kind of thing. They're pretty much the same. Jewish is the same as Christian, the same as Islam. There's minor differences. They're not fundamental differences. They're, they're, they're not foundational differences. They're minor differences, but they're, they're pretty much all the same. Uh, and we do, as Christians, have a lot in common with the Islamic faith. We do have a lot in common with the Hindi faith. We have a lot in common with the Baha'i faith. We have a lot in common, a whole, a whole lot in common uh, with the Jewish faith. In fact, we thank those guys. Uh, but, but, but there are some foundational distinctives about Christianity that make it unique from other world religions. There are some affirmations, some convictions, some core beliefs that are not kind of out on the periphery, not kind of some secondary things, some very foundational things that we affirm and believe in Christianity that make it unique from other religions. All world religions are not the same. And one of those foundational distinctives Jesus is going to introduce us to today in John chapter 5. He, he, this is Jesus' kind of first introductory remarks, his, uh, we'll call it his keynote address, as he addresses in this long monologue that will take us several weeks to get through, this long monologue uh, that, that he delivers to this group of people who have just watched him heal a man at the pool of Bethesda. And this very first public address, this very first keynote address that Jesus gives in the book of John, he begins to lay the foundation for a distinctive affirmation or a distinctive belief of Christianity that makes it unique from all other world religions. And we're going to talk about that belief this morning. There's a lot of things that make Christianity different, but this is one of them. 
And before we get there, I want to kind of remind us where we've come from over the last, uh, last week in particular. So if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 5, verse 16. John chapter 5, verse 16. This is the gospel of John. This is the life of Jesus, biography of Jesus, according to his friend John. We're in chapter 5, a study called Believe, a journey through the gospel of John. If you don't have your Bible, grab your device, free Wi-Fi in here. It's Bayview Wi-Fi. You can grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with the friend, or you can look up here on the screen beside me. Look what's happened. And this is why, verse 16 says, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, what are these things? Well, the, these things that John is talking about is Jesus has just healed a man who's been crippled for 38 years. And the Jews are angry with him, and not just not all Jews. What John is using is this word Jews to, to, to um, delineate a very specific part of the Jewish faith, the religious leaders, the keepers of the law, the Pharisees. They're angry with him, and they begin to persecute him because he was healing on the Sabbath. Well, why is that a problem? Well, it's because the Old Testament says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So the Jews have said, nobody works on the Sabbath. Nobody works on the Sabbath. That's how we keep it holy. Nobody works. But then they encountered a problem, and the problem is this. What if God takes a break on the Sabbath? Is he breaking his own law? Uh, because if he takes a break on the Sabbath, the world comes apart, right? Like God still has to be working in order to keep us intact. God still has to be involved. God still has to be interactive. God interacting. God still has to be at work so that we can draw our next breath. Is everybody with me? So what the Jews said was that God was exempt from his own law. He's the only one that can work on the Sabbath. So if Jesus is working on the Sabbath, he's either A, breaking the Sabbath law, or B, what's he claiming? That he's exempt from the law. <laughs> now watch what Jesus says. He says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. He doesn't say my father is working and therefore I am working. He says my father is working until now and I am working. He's putting himself on the same plane as the father. He's saying the father and I are equal and we both are exempt from this law of no Sabbath or no worky on the Sabbath. Okay, we're both exempt from that law because I am God and the father is God. We are exempt from that law. You see it? Okay, everybody knows exactly what he's saying because look how the Jews respond. This is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. <laughs> Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. For those that even say modern, in modern times, it's just amazing to me. Oh, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He was just kind of a prophet and a good man. And this whole idea of Jesus becoming God developed in Christian communities two, three, four hundred years after Jesus had died. That's not true. I mean, the Gospel of John, we have very, very early manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and, and Jesus claims this from the outset, from the very first introductory keynote address. Everybody understands what he's claiming, and they get mad at him, and they eventually kill him for it. Now, Jesus takes this opportunity 
to respond to the Pharisees, to respond to the keepers of the law, and to kind of unpack this fundamental distinctive, which what will become a fundamental distinctive in Christian faith and set the foundation for it. But I want you to know before we go any further, what happens here in John chapter 5 is that John begins to kind of pump the brakes on his gospel a little bit. The whole gospel slows down so we can focus in on and see exactly what's happening when Jesus gives this keynote address. My brother worked at Blockbuster Video one summer. Do you guys remember Blockbuster Video? Okay, so you go in, they have the VHS tapes all behind the thing, and you have to go and see. If, you know, you remember what I'm talking about? Do you remember Be Kind, Rewind? They're like, my, my daughter will never know what it is to be kind and rewind. You know, she, hopefully she knows what it is to be kind, but she will never know what it is to rewind. So, the reason I'm telling you that is because when my brother worked at Blockbuster Video, at the end of the night, when they were closing up, whatever movies were left over, you could, they could take home whatever movies that they wanted to of any of the movies that were left over. So that summer, my brother and I watched every Bruce Lee movie ever made. It was the most glorious summer of all. If you're looking for a great Bruce Lee movie, it's Game of Death. He fights Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the end. That's free for nothing. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, but that's the greatest Bruce Lee movie ever made. And in Kung Fu movies, what happens is it's like kind of fast action. Everybody's kicking each other and punching each other. And then when you're supposed to kind of focus, it just goes down to slow motion. You remember The Matrix? Anybody seen The Matrix? Never seen Bruce Lee, you know, and they shoot the gun and Keanu Reeves does the thing, you know? Does he not play the same character in every movie? Like Speed, did you see Speed? There's a bomb on the bus, dude. I'm like... You will always be Ted Theodore Logan Esquire to me, Keanu Reeves. Okay, so the point is, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning, but here's the deal. John bumps the brakes. I mean, it goes to total slow motion, so as slow as you can possibly get, this is where we're at in the gospel. It's totally slow motion because, because John wants us to focus He wants us to listen really closely. He doesn't want us to miss any of this action. So it's almost as if the gospel comes to a grinding halt. And listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. This truly, truly here is what Bible scholars call a double amen. Essentially, Jesus is saying, listen up, listen close, slow down, and pay attention. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, he's already claimed he's equal with God, hasn't he? He's already claimed he's equal with God, but now he's saying that the Son, that's him, and the Father are distinct. They're distinct yet equal. People have been around the Christian faith for a little while. What is the fundamental distinctive that Jesus is establishing right here from the outset? What is it? It's Trinity, right? It's the Trinity. For those of you who have been around for a little while, you know that the Trinity is simply defined this way. We believe in one God and three persons. This is very different from any other world religion. Yes, Christianity is monotheistic. We believe in one God, but within the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, And the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. 
But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Each one of them equal in their godness, but distinct from one another. And I've heard a lot of metaphors regarding the Trinity. One of them is the egg. Have you heard the egg? Like the Trinity is like an egg. It's like an egg shell and an egg yolk and an egg white. It's three parts, but it's all an egg. Or I've heard like the water metaphor, like H2O appears as like ice and steam and water. I heard two metaphors actually this week that I really like a lot. And any metaphor we use is just going to fall short. I'll just tell you that right now. There's always going to be a problem with an analogy or with a metaphor. It's always going to break down at some point. But I heard two this week that I think might be really helpful and really instructive for us as we seek to understand the Trinity and not just understand the Trinity, but understand how the Trinity impacts our lives and what it is that Jesus is inviting us into in terms of participation. And the first analogy I heard is this. It's, a, it's an analogy of a cube. This is C.S. Lewis' analogy from a book called Mere Christianity. If you're brand new to Christianity and you want to read just kind of a foundational book, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's fantastic. And what C.S. Lewis explains in this book is uh, he explains that a line, any one line, uh, can only exist in one plane of space. So picture it with me. And stick with me here. This might get a little complicated, but stick with me. One line can either go forward or backward. It can go side to side or it can go up and down. Does that make sense? Those are the three places that a line can exist in space. The x-axis, the y-axis, and the z-axis if you're a math wizard. I was an English major, so that might have been totally wrong, but that's beside the point. Three areas, x, y, and z, right? Forward and backward, side to side, and up and down. And any one of those lines can only exist in one part of space. This line that exists here cannot simultaneously exist here. It's just one line. But watch this. When you start to connect those lines, this one running side to side with this one running up and down, what you can start to make is shapes like a square. And now you've got something that's not only existing in one part of space, but in two parts of space, two dimensions. That's where we get our term two-dimensional from. <laughs> I'm a thinker. But then when you add a different line in a different part of space, let's say front to back, what shape can you make now? A cube. You can make a cube. And a cube exists in three dimensions. There's different faces of a cube. There are different aspects of a cube. You can turn it over. You can look at it. You can hold it and touch it. And each one of those lines does not cease to be a line anymore, right? It's still a line. It's just connected with other lines. So C.S. Lewis compares that to the Trinity. He says when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact, the Father does not cease to be the Father. The Son does not cease to be the Son. The Spirit does not cease to be the Spirit. But they begin to interact. And what we see is this multifaceted, sophisticated, complex God with different characteristics and different traits and different sides and aspects that we can examine, learn from, interact with. But I want to take C.S. Lewis' metaphor one step further this morning, and I don't want to improve upon it because he's C.S. Lewis and you can't, but that's beside the point. The point is this, that physicists, modern physicists, would say that there are more than three dimensions. Did you know that? There are more than three dimensions. Anybody ever heard of string theory? You heard of string theory before? Have you only heard of string theory because you watch Big Bang? Is that the only reason you've heard of it? 
Yeah, either that or you're a physicist. Those are the only two ways you've heard of string theory. String theory suggests that there are 10 different dimensions. Super string theory suggests that there are 11 different dimensions. Check this out. What's called bosonic string theory suggests that there are 26 different dimensions in which a line can exist. So not just three, 26. So what we have now is 26 different places that a line can exist, 26 different dimensions, all interconnected such that we have this complex thing that we're, it just blows our mind that there are even 26 different dimensions. That's what we're supposed to think of when we're supposed, when we think of the Trinity, a very complex, unique, just blow your mind. I, and, and every time you turn and every time you interact with God, it's something different. It's something new. It's this life-giving force that's so sophisticated and so multifaceted. And we can never wrap our minds around it completely. But then it's so approachable, God is. So near to us. I've heard God compared to a lake that in places is shallow enough for a baby to bathe in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. <laughs> this is the nature of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis in that book uses a second metaphor. I love this one. He writes this. He says, God is a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. He's not a stagnant thing like a cube, although C.S. Lewis helps us understand the complex, multifaceted nature of God when he explains God with a cube or helps us understand God with a cube. He's saying that God is living. And he says, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. There's something that happens within the context of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune God that we worship that's life-giving and unique and dynamic and moving at all times. Just after he talks about this dance, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, I warned you that theology is practical. See, a lot of us want to leave theology up here. We want to say that, okay, this is what we think of God, this is what we believe about God, but that which we think about God and that which we believe about God can, will, and should impact our lives and have practical implications. So let's continue this metaphor of a dance, or let C.S. Lewis continue the metaphor of a dance, and here's what he means by theology is practical. He says this, uh, sorry, <laughs> the, reason that God, uh, the reason that theology is practical is because God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words, we were made in the image of God. We were made in the image of this triune Trinitarian God. You and I were meant to reflect that image. So C.S. Lewis writes this. Sorry, we'll go there now. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is being played out in each one of us or putting it the other way around. Each of us has got to enter that pattern to take his place in that dance. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. So here's what C.S. Lewis is arguing, and here's where we're going to kind of camp out this morning. Understanding the Trinity is not just something we do up here. It's something that should make its way out into the way we live and work and interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. Understanding the Trinity is not just something that happens in our mind. It's something that should change the way we speak to one another. So when Jesus begins to unpack 
this very complex when he, nature of the triune God, when he begins to lay the foundation for this distinctive of Christianity, it's not just something this morning that I want us to go, oh yeah, I get it. The Trinity, I understand now. It's something that I want us to feel as if God is inviting us into because he is. He's inviting us into this life that God has within himself, these three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is we're going to allow Jesus in this very slow monologue here to talk to us a little bit about the Trinity. We're going to learn what's happening in the context of the Trinity and then just ask one question and apply those aspects of the Trinity to our life. You with me? Good. Five verses. First one. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing. The Son can do what? Nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. What Jesus is doing here in verse 19 is he's calling on a very familiar aspect of first century Hebrew culture. It's this idea of an apprenticeship. Because each son growing up with his father would have learned from his father whatever trade that father was engaged in. If their father was a fisherman, the son would learn how to fish. If their father was a politician, the son would learn how to be a politician. If the son or the father, in Jesus' case, was a carpenter, Jesus learned how to be a carpenter. In fact, he's called the carpenter's son multiple times in the Gospels. His earthly father, Joseph, would have taught him, pick up that tool, sand that, put that together, shave that down, don't set that on fire. Whatever it is, whatever it was, he was teaching him, and he was teaching him bit by bit, piece by piece, and growing him to learn in that craft. And what happens in an apprenticeship is the apprentice does nothing unless they're told to do it. The, the apprentice submits to the leader or the master. What Jesus is telling us here is something that might blow your mind, but within the Trinity, there is a submission that's happening. The Son submits to the will of the Father. God the Son, fully God, not, not, not you know, on a one to ten, like a seven God or like a nine God, fully God. Fully God, the Son, Jesus, submits to the will of the Father. Jesus himself says, I do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. Can you believe that? This is why Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to, submitting to death, even death on a cross. The son submits to the will of the father. Now it's interesting to me because the Bible talks about submission all over the place. It talks about submission in the home in Ephesians 5, submission to government in 1 Peter 2, uh, submission in the church in Hebrew thir Hebrews 13. And we come across these words like submission in the home in Ephesians 5, and everybody goes, ugh. <laughs> like I've even had couples that I, you know, I, I, I officiate their wedding, like could you not read that because that submission thing is ugh. Or like around here, like elders that are leading and shepherding our church come to people and they ask them to respond in a certain way and say, I don't want to submit to that. I'm not submitting. 
or, or submission to government. You know, government makes a law that we don't like. Like, I don't want to submit to government. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And you think, oh, I submit to government. Like, I've not done anything illegal. How fast did you go on the way here? I like to call them speed opportunities, by the way. Sounds better than speed limits, doesn't it? Just speed opportunities, very optimistic. See, what's happening here is when the Bible starts to tell us to be submissive in particular contexts and particular relationships, that's not all the time, but in specific contexts and specific relationships, to submit to one another out of brotherly love, these are not arbitrary rules that God is making so that we can impress them or impress him or so that we can be annoyed or so we can prove to him that we are super awesome because I've tamed my tongue and I'm submissive where you've asked me to be submissive. No, this idea of submission finds its core, its foundation, the very heart of what it is within the Trinity. To be submissive is to live in the way that Jesus lived. Can you believe that? It's so funny. It's like, well, I don't, like people are like, I don't, I don't want to submit to anybody. I, I, I run my own life. Even Jesus didn't. Like, even Jesus didn't. Even Jesus was submissive. Help me out here. So you're exempt from the submission thing? Okay, cool. Jesus wasn't, so you deal with that with him. But here's my question. Here's how, here's how God's Trinitarian life, the, the triune God, here's where the rubber really meets the road or the meat hits the grinder, all right? Here's the question. Who do you submit to? Who do you submit to? Unless you can look at some place in your life and say, I submit to my boss at work. I submit to my spouse at home. I'm a ministry partner here. I've made a formal commitment to this church, so I submit to the leadership of the elders of this church. Like, submission, it's so funny too, because even even asking this question, I feel uncomfortable with it. And I shouldn't. Do you know why? Because this is a Trinitarian value. This is the God we serve. We see submission within the Trinity. I'm uncomfortable, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Okay, let's keep reading. Here we go. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is continuing this apprenticeship analogy. And what he's saying is not just that I do nothing of my own accord, but only what the Father tells me to do, compels me to do, instructs me to do. It's not just that, but all that the Father is, I am. All that the Father does, I do. So again, on a 1 to 10, Jesus is not saying, I'm a pretty good impression of who God is. Pretty close. Closer than all of you. Still not there, but at least close. That's not what he's saying. On a 1 to 10, I'm a 10. I'm fully God. I am the complete image of the Father. The Bible affirms this everywhere. Colossians 1.15 says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 gets even more specific. Love this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So what Jesus is saying is within the Trinity, there is this expression that Jesus gives to the nature of God. A Trinitarian expression. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. It's not complicated. If you want to know the heart of God, get to know Jesus. If you want to know the character of God, get to know Jesus. You want to know what makes God mad? Look at what, Jesus, look at what makes Jesus mad. 
You want to know what makes God happy? Look at what makes Jesus happy. Remember how John started his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was what? With God, totally God, and yet distinct from God, the message of God take on or become flesh. That is Jesus. He is the complete and total, comprehensive, no mistakes, no errors, expression of, physical expression of this Trinitarian God. And so when the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, invites us into that life, what that means is that we become God's expression as well. So the question is simply this, who sees God in you? Who sees God in you? In the way that you behave, in the way that you show mercy, in the way that you're gracious, in the way that you work really hard at your job, in the way that you talk about your spouse when your spouse is not listening, in the way that you're a good friend, Who sees God in you? If Jesus is the complete expression of God, when he invites us into that life, he's saying, you were made in the image of that Trinitarian God. Now go be an image bearer. (laughs) And we think this is more complicated than it really is. We act like it's more complicated than it really is. I think in large parts we don't want to be held accountable for it. But it's not complicated. It doesn't take much. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have read all the books. Right before I left my previous church, one of the very last things I did in the second to last service I ever uh, served there on full-time staff as a pastor, I got the opportunity to baptize a little girl who was about eight years old at the time. Her name is Reese. Uh, Reese has what's called a Cardi syndrome. Uh, She experiences seizures all day. She's completely nonverbal. She probably won't live to see her 12th birthday. Uh, She has a very, very difficult time interacting at all. She smiles a little bit, and she'll make eye contact with you. But a lot of times by about 10 a.m. when the meds have set in, uh, Reese is pretty much incapacitated for the rest of the day. She spends a lot of her time in a stroller even now at 10, 11 years old. I got the opportunity to to baptize Reese, and because her parents, who are good friends of mine, uh, came to me and said, would you please baptize our daughter? I said, that's, that's interesting. It's an interesting request. Why would you ask me to baptize your daughter? And they said, because we see Jesus in her. And we just want to kind of inaugurate her into this kingdom of, uh, of God and welcome her into the family of faith because we know in whatever way Reese can, she loves Jesus. And she expresses Jesus and shows Jesus. And we see God in Reese. And I'm going, Reese can't talk. Reese can't walk. Reese, Reese can't move. Reese can barely interact. How do you see God in Reese? Well, we see God in Reese's smile. And we see God in the way that her eyes twinkle when her sisters laugh. And we see God in the way that Reese has brought us joy in our life. So, friends, I hate to put such a fine point on it this morning, but I'm going to. If a 10 year old girl who can't talk, or walk, barely interact, has a difficult time smiling and experiences seizures most of the day and probably won't see her 12th birthday, can be an expression of God's grace to so many around her, and I am one of them, then we can too, can't we? Then we can too. We have so many tools at our disposal to be the expression of God to others around us. 
Again, in the way we behave, interact, talk, spend. That is what it means to participate in this dance that is Trinitarian life, is to be the voice of God and express God to somebody around you. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, for the Father loves the Son. I'm going to tuck in my shirt here so I don't give you a little, a little too much Luke there. Um, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. For the Father loves the Son. What we see here is a relationship within the Trinity. We see Trinitarian relationship. The Father loves the Son and the Son reciprocates and loves the Father. So I want you to kind of file that away in the back of your mind that we see a relationship in the Trinity because we're going to take this and combine it with one other aspect of the Trinity and then apply that to our life. Okay, so let's keep reading. We'll come back. Greater works than these will he show him, will the Father show the Son so that you may marvel. We'll come back to this verse too. Keep reading. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them, say this word with me, life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let's try that again. It was okay. It can get better. The father raises the dead and gives them, come on now, life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. So the purpose of the Trinity is to give life. There is a purpose within the Trinity. And so it's this relationship that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have shared with one another from eternity past. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And the Spirit is engaged there too. And, and there is a, a relationship and, and, and an interaction that happens within the context of the Trinity that continued when Jesus came to earth as 100% God. And that relationship has a purpose, and that purpose is to give life. We just looked at it. The purpose of the Father is to give life. The purpose of the Son is to give life. So check this out. The Trinity shares life among the three persons and then gives life to others. The Trinity shares life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then gives life to, uh, gives life to others. Share life, give life. Share life, give life. Anybody sound familiar to anybody? This is the purpose of life groups here at Bayview Glen. This is what we do. And it's not just because like, we, we're in an office one day and we're like, hey, we're kind of bored. Dave only has like 15 hours of work to do. What should we do? Let's start a bunch of small groups. That's not what that was for. The purpose of our life groups here actually finds its roots in the Trinity. The life that the Trinity shares, the relationship that the Trinity shares uh, among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the overflow of that life brings life to others. So here's the question. Where are you bringing life with others? If the purpose of the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together is to resurrect the dead and bring life, then you and I being invited into that means that we partner with others in the body of Christ and bring life as well. It's not complicated. This is who we were made to be because we were made in the image of God and the likeness of God. We were meant to be in relationship and not just life-giving relationship that gives life to one another, but that gives life to the community and neighborhoods around us. So not where are you bringing life to others or where are you bringing life for others, but where have you joined in purposeful strategic relationships in your life, not just sit down and have coffee and have a little chit-chat but to bring life to the communities and neighborhoods around you. That is a Trinitarian value that we see expressed in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. I'll just be straight with you. I was personally convicted about this particular aspect of Trinitarian life this week. 
And what, what that will change in my life is I'm getting in a life group. Like, I never really wanted to do a life group before. Like, there's a commitment. And all Dave's curriculum is boring. It's all your sermons? It's all your sermons? Is that what you said? <laughs> I really hope you like the next church you're working at, buddy. So. <laughs> Dave and I, I, I've, just, I've just ripped life groups in the first two services now. And Dave and I, I came up to Dave after the 9 a.m. I'm like, I'm really sorry. He's like, no, that was great. I'm like, wow, you are a glutton for punishment. But it's, so listen, here's the thing. Like, I know when we get up here and talk about life groups each and every week, like you think it's for our health. You think we want to drive numbers. We just want to get a bunch of people in life groups. No, we want you to participate in Trinitarian life. And the nature of the Trinity is to share life among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to bring life to the people that interact with the Trinity. That's it. So even though I don't like commitment and even though I don't want to have people over my house every night of the week and all this other stuff, I was like, you know what? If I am going to live out Trinitarian values in my own life, I'm getting in a life group. We're going to adopt a baby here in the next couple weeks, I hope, and we're getting in a life group this fall because that is a commitment that I've made personally is to observe what happens within the context of the Trinity and to apply that to my life. I hope you do the same. All right, let's keep reading. We'll finish the text. We'll be done. The Father, gives, or the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has delegated the Son. He's turned over all judgment to the Son. The Father judges no one. He's turned judgment over to the Son, but the key question is why. Why has he done this? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So within the context of the Trinity, there's a Trinitarian honor that happens. Each person of the Trinity honors the other. The Father gives judgment to the Son so that the Son is honored. The Son honors the Father. In John 13 through 17, Jesus is going to start talking about the Spirit and the way that the Spirit just affirms all that God is, the Father and God the Son have already done and honors the Father and the Son. And the Father honors the Spirit. There's this mutual submission that happens, although all are equal, and this mutual honoring of each other person in the trinity that happens within the context of our trinitarian god but i want you to take a look at these two verses side by side this is fascinating to me because in verse 20 jesus says this greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel that's verse 20b jesus says greater works than these will the father show the son so that you may marvel so that you may be astonished so you may go Wow, that's definitely God doing that. I ain't never seen anybody raised from the dead before. You know what I feel? Marvel. That's, that's, I'm astonished at that. So that's what Jesus is saying. But then watch what happens in verse 23. This is fascinating. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here's what Jesus is saying. You may stand back from the Trinity and be astonished. You may stand back and marvel at what God has done. But marvel and honor are not synonyms. Those aren't the same thing. See, honor requires relationship. Honor requires surrender. Honor requires submission. Honor requires coming before the Trinity and going, I exalt you, I lift you up. 
I don't just stand back and go, wow, what you did is amazing and I'm grateful for that. But I've moved into a place where I have knelt my life before you and surrendered my time, my energy, my talent. Everything that I am is yours because I honor you. And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father. Marvel and honor are not synonyms. So here's my final question and we'll close with a song. Have you moved from marvel to honor? Have you moved from marvel to honor? Are you like the, you know, the rapper on the Grammys? Actually, this year's rapper, Chance the Rapper, was fantastic, but that's beside the point. In the past, you see the rappers on the Grammys, you know what I'm talking about, and they say, hey, I just, I just thank God for all my success, and I'm hashtag blessed and all that stuff, and then they go up and sing a song that I'm like, that's so dirty, I'm like, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, that is, I don't even understand what they're talking about. See, that's Marvel. See, marveling is easy. Marvel means you stand back. Marvel means you just kind of pay lip service. But honor means your life is changed. It means you're different. It means you now enter into this Trinitarian dance and participate in the triune, the life of the triune God and get near to that God and allow those values to shape and shift and carve and change who you are. Marvel and honor are not synonyms, so have you made the move? And that's the invitation of the Trinitarian God. And we'll continue our study in the Gospel of John next week, but for now, we're gonna stop and simply honor the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the blessed Trinity, by singing holy, holy, holy. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. God, we bless you, we praise you, we honor you. God, we do not want to be a people that just stand back in astonishment, but we want to be a people that come near in a posture of honor and surrender and submission. Teach us, God, to not just understand the Trinity in our head and understand you in our head, but live out these values in our parenting, in our finances, in our marriages, in our church life, in our work life, that we would be a people who submits where we ought to submit, that establishes purposeful relationships in order to bring life to people around us. And that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you would lead the way in teaching us what it means to be fully human and to experience that abundant life that you promised throughout the book of John and throughout the scripture. We turn our hearts and voices now to you as we sing holy, 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 and we honor you together in Christ's name. Let's just continue this posture of worship. Stand and respond in song.